Good evening and welcome to Universal Music Group's second quarter and first half earnings call for the period ended at June 30th, 2023. My name is Maxine and I'll be your conference operator today. Your speakers for today's call will be Sir Lucien Grange, Chairman and CEO of Universal Music Group, and Boyd Muir, Executive Vice President, CFO and President of Operations. They will be joined during Q&A by Michael Nash, UMG's Executive Vice President and Chief Digital Officer. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star, followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, please press star, followed by two. Please let me remind you that management's commentary and responses to questions on today's call may include forward-looking statements, which by their nature are uncertain and outside of the company's control. Although these forward-looking statements are based on management's current expectations and beliefs, actual results may vary in a material way. For a discussion of some of the factors that could cause actual results to differ from expected results, Please see the Risk Factors section of UMG's 2022 Annual Report, which is available on its website at universalmusic.com. Management's commentary will also refer to non-IFRS measures on today's call. Reconciliations are available in the Interim Financial Review and Unaudited Condensed Consolidated Interim Financial Statements for the six-month period ended June 30th, 2023, on the Investor Relations page of UMG's website. Thank you. Sir Lucien, you may begin your conference. Thank you, um, and good evening from Hilberson. I'm very happy to welcome you as we report another consecutive quarter of strong results for Universal Music Group. Results that are not strong only financially, but strategically and creatively as well. I'll have more to say about the creative steps our teams have been taking to drive our strategy forward, especially in the areas of streaming, artificial intelligence, and high-growth potential markets. But first, uh, a brief look at our financial results. In the second quarter, our revenue grew 9% in constant currency over last year's second quarter, and adjusted EBITDA grew 19%. Boyd will dive into the numbers in greater detail in a few minutes, but I wanted to say how proud I am of these results. Once again, our growth came from all segments of the business, music publishing, merchandising, and recorded music, as well as from all major revenue streams within our recorded music business. We're an artist-centric company, our consistently stellar performance is directly attributable to the deep and sustaining partnerships we've formed with our artists. These partnerships with both established artists and new ones are in place throughout the world, in developed music markets, and ones with high growth potential as well. I'd like to take a moment to share with you just a few of the numerous examples that reflect how our relationships with artists help us achieve immediate chart success, and even more critically, how those relationships can build long-term staying power. Let's start with the US. For the first six months of this year, UMG had seven of the top 10 albums, as well as four of the top five albums, 
with Morgan Wallen filling the number one slot. When it came to songs, UMG had six of the top ten. And recently, Taylor Swift became the very first woman in history to have four albums in the top ten simultaneously, including this week's number one. In the UK, UMG artists had six of the top ten albums in the first half of the year. Out of those 26 chart weeks, UMG artists held the number one slot for 15 of those weeks. As further evidence of the depth and breadth of our roster, those 15 number one slots were held by 13 different UMG artists, from Metallica and U2 to Niall Horan, Lana Del Rey, Shania Twain, Sam Smith to Boy Genius and the Lathams, amongst others. And in Japan for the first half of the year, King and Prince was the top-selling artist, and two of the top three new artists were ours too, including Le Seraphim and Travis Japan. I'll finish up this portion of my remarks by talking about our partnerships with two of today's greatest Latin music artists. We're thrilled that Carol G has partnered with Interscope Records for her future recordings, reaffirming her long-term relationship with UMG. Ever since signing with Universal Music Latin Entertainment in 2016, Carol has become an astonishing musical presence, currently one of the most successful Latin female artists in the world. She's generated nearly 80 billion global music streams so far. And this year, she became the first woman ever to debut at number one on the Billboard 200 with a Spanish language album. And while we're talking about mega Latin superstars, Anita has signed to Republic Records in partnership with uh, Universal Music Latin. Nominated for Best New Artist at the 2023 Grammy Awards, she's a string of other historic-making accomplishments, including the first solo Latin artist to reach number one on Spotify globally and the 2022 winner of the Best Latin Artist at the American Music Awards. MTV Video Music Awards and MTV Europe, European Music Awards. These are just a handful of highlights from a long list of remarkable achievements by our artists. But in the interests of time, I'd like to shift attention to those significant strategic to topics I referred to earlier. We're fiercely determined to make sure that the industry grows along with us. Creativity thrives on competition and is propelled forward by an industry in a sense. Back in January, I talked about how it was time for the streaming model to be transformed, and I outlined some of those core principles that we would use to guide our work with platforms to have them become more artist-centric. Over the last few months, we have not been idle. Far from it. Our teams have been working diligently and creatively with our platform partners to turn these principles into reality. I'm pleased to tell you that along the way, we learned that many of the platforms actually share our desire to update the streaming model and therefore, thereby improve the music experience they provide to their subscribers. As we all know, in recent months, two significant developments grew in prominence in our industry adding a sense of urgency to our efforts. These are the rise of generative AI and the proliferation of fraud. 
I'll have more to say about AI in a minute, but the nature of both of these developments further validated our concerns about streaming's content oversupply, as we call it, and what we saw as the diminished experience for fans. Today, I'm delighted to tell you that the transformation of streaming we have envisaged has begun. Any meaningful change to the streaming model must first and foremost address the fact that today, music is undervalued. We've long believed that streaming monetization in, in both developed and emerging markets has significant upside. Therefore, we obviously welcome Spotify's announcement that they will increase prices in more than 50 territories, as well as YouTube's announcement that they have raised the price of their subscription music service in the US. But addressing average revenue per user, or ARPU, is just one component of the artist-centric approach. First, we must ensure that real artists with real fan bases are fairly rewarded for the platform engagement they drive. Second, that platforms need to apply stricter fraud detection and enforcement systems, removing incentives for bad actors, and protecting streaming royalties for legitimate artists. This includes ensuring real artists don't have their royalties diluted by noise and other content that has no meaningful engagement whatsoever from music fans. And third, better aligning the relationship between artists and fans by promoting greater discovery and promotion of real artists. And on these three critical points, Spotify shares these concerns, and as part of our newly expanded agreement, they've committed to continue to work to address them. In addition, they will be collaborating with us on deep data analysis, formally taking part in this foundational piece of our expanding artist-centric initiative. To summarize, who are the winners under this new model? Simply real artists, by which I mean artists at all stages of their careers, who are DIY, independent or major, who are real, actual human beings who have real, actual fans. Who are the losers? those devoted to gaming the system, to committing fraud, and to flooding the platform with content that music fans do not want. There are many others in the music industry who share our firmly held principles about the value of artistry and the artist-fan relationship. I'm confident that the unique structures we've put in place and those we are working with on a number of other partners will bring those principles to life across the streaming world. Again, I want to stress our goal is a simple one, to promote an environment in which great music does not drown in a sea of noise, an environment in which fans can enjoy a more satisfying experience and creators of music content are more fairly compensated. Now let me turn to AI. <clears throat> On our last call, we talked at length about generative AI. Since then, speculation about the changes AI will bring to almost every aspect of our lives keeps growing. As a supporter of the human artistry campaign since its inception, UMG is working with the other 140 organizations 
in the creative industries to educate and support policymakers around the world about how to ensure AI is used at the service of creators. I also talked about the opportunities AI presents. We already employ AI in a variety of ways, identifying new audiences for our artists, optimizing the production, mixing, and mastering of recordings, and enhancing the quality of music experience, such as immersive sound. One example of how the responsible use of AI can support and enhance the creativity of our artists, labels, and songwriters is our first of its kind strategic relationship with Endel, an AI sound wellness company. As we recently announced under the agreement, a UMG artist using Endel's proprietary AI technology can create soundscapes from the artist's existing recordings to promote listeners' wellness, opening new commercial opportunities for our existing and growing catalog. And in April, we released a new track with our partners at Hive from their artist Midna. Using Hive's proprietary technology and with the artist's collaboration and consent, the track was simultaneously released in six languages, Korean, English, Japanese, Chinese, Spanish, and Vietnamese, with the goal of offering music fans the opportunity to hear the K-pop track in their own local language. It was a fascinating example of how AI can be used to help music reach global audiences and use in exciting ways. And our legal and public policy teams are actively working to bring legal clarity to responsible AI. We want to drive smart, future-proof public policy solutions that protect artists' rights and enhance AI innovation. In fact, two weeks ago, our general counsel, Jeff Arlison, testified before the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Intellectual Property. He told the senators that AI, and this is a quote, AI in the service of artists and creativity is a wonderful thing. But AI that uses, or worse yet, appropriates their work or their name, image, likeness, or voice without authorization is not. We'll have announcements in the very near future about how AI can unlock other commercial and creative opportunities in our business. In short, we're optimistic about AI and see it as a powerful tool in the service of artists when deployed responsibly. Now let me turn to the third important strategic focus I want to say a few words about, and that is expanding our presence and accelerating our growth in those music markets around the world that we see as having great potential. We are approaching this goal in three different ways. Firstly, by signing and developing local artists just as we do in more developed music markets. Second, by partnering with local labels to produce them with global promotion, distribution, and a full suite of artist services. And thirdly, through M&A, that is the acquisition of local labels, catalog, and artist services businesses. Our most recent such transaction, announced at the end of last month, is in Thailand, where we've agreed to form a strategic partnership of which we'll own 70%. The transaction will instantly make UMG the second largest player in one of the world's fastest growing music markets and provide UMG with the scale to make an even greater impact in Thailand and outside of it as well. 
we're constantly on the lookout for similarly attractive M&A opportunities in high growth potential markets. And whenever and wherever such an opportunity makes financial and strategic sense, we will pursue it. Let me close by saying that we're obviously thrilled with our results this quarter, but our excitement doesn't end there. It extends to the great music we've got on the horizon, coming from every corner of the globe and to the long-term vision we have for both UMG and the industry. We're confident that the groundwork we are putting in place to drive strong subscription growth, to introduce new artists and genres to generations of new fans, to use artificial intelligence wisely, responsibly, and profitably, and grow our e-commerce and D2C business, and to expand our presence in high-growth markets, all our efforts will enable us to turn our long-term vision into reality for years to come. And with that, I'd like to turn over to Boyd uh, to walk you through uh, the financial results uh, that we talked about just earlier in greater detail. Thank you. Over to you, Boyd. Thank you, Lucien. As you heard Lucien touch upon, the second quarter has been another strong one for UMG. Revenue grew by 9% and adjusted EBITDA grew by 19% in constant currency. These results drove nearly two points of expansion in adjusted EBITDA margin to 21.9%. Even with the solid second quarter results and margin, we continue to encourage you to view the business over a longer term horizon, as there will always be variability quarter to quarter. We do not expect to add this much margin in every quarter, but we remain on plan to hit our margin guidance of over a point of adjusted EBITDA margin expansion in 2023. In terms of the difference between EBITDA and adjusted EBITDA, we had 85 million euros in non-cash share-based compensation expense for the quarter. Our EBITDA and adjusted EBITDA results also reflect 24 million euros of cash compensation savings in the quarter as we work towards a run rate of 100 million euros per year beginning in 2024. For the half year, revenue was up 9% and adjusted EBITDA grew 16%, driving margin expansion of 1.3 percentage points to 21.6%. The first half had a total of 345 million euros in non-cash share-based compensation expense compared with their guidance of 630 million euros for the year. And the first half saw 33 million euros of cash compensation savings in line with our 2023 guidance of between 60 million and 80 million in savings. Recorded music revenue grew 11% for the quarter and 10% for the half year. This revenue growth drove adjusted EBITDA up 16% for the first half and adjusted EBITDA margin expanded 1.1 percentage points to 24.2% in the half. The margin expansion is a result of operating leverage as well as the cash compensation saving associated with the equity plan. 
Looking further at recorded music, subscription revenue saw an accelerated level of growth, up 13% for the quarter. The uplift in the second quarter was a result of broad-based growth in subscribers across all major global, pl global pa platform partners, excuse me, as well as price increases from certain platforms. This brings subscription growth to 11.6% for the half year. Ad-supported streaming revenue grew 5% in the second quarter. While we saw an improvement in trends at several partners and in certain countries, the results were not uniform, and we believe it is too early to call a positive turnaround in the market. Ad-supported streaming was up 2% in the half, and we are encouraged by the fact that our comps are easier in the back half of the year. Physical revenue grew 11% in the second quarter, again helped by strong CD sales in Japan from King & Prince, as well as growth in vinyl sales. Physical revenue was up 21% for the half. However, please note, physical revenue can fluctuate significantly with our release schedule. Licensing and other revenue grew 16% in the quarter, driven by neighboring rights, brand partnerships, and income from live events, and grew 13% for the first half of the year. Also important is that the growth was well distributed globally, with the strongest growth in Asia and double-digit growth in Latin America as well. As you can see here, major sellers were also well distributed geographically and included a mix of both newer and more established artists. Turning to music publishing, revenue declined slightly for the quarter. This was solely the result of a previously disclosed one-time item in the prior year quarter. As we've previously discussed, as part of our 2022 change in society accounting, we booked a catch-up of 98 million euros in Q2 2022 related to prior years. Excluding this impact, Music publishing revenue grew 26% in the second quarter of 2023, thanks to a stronger-than-expected post-COVID recovery in performance revenue, as well as strong digital growth fueled by streaming and subscription. For the half year, music publishing revenue grew 5%, or 19%, excluding the impact of the one-time catch-up. Music publishing adjusted EBITDA grew 8% for the half, or 18%, excluding last year's 17 million euro benefit from the one-time accrual. Also excluding the accrual, music publishing adjusted EBITDA margin was flat at 24.3%. Turning now to merchandising. Merchandising revenue grew 12% in the quarter, with growth in direct-to-consumer revenue fueled by a strong performance from Taylor Swift, more than offsetting a decline in touring revenue. As a reminder, the prior year reflected outsized growth from the recovery of touring merch sales following the COVID shutdown. Merchandising revenue grew 6% for the half year and adjusted EBITDA grew 43%, while margin expanded two percentage points to 7.6%, 
due to the shift towards higher margin direct-to-consumer sales. Net profit for the first half of 2023 amounted to 625 million euros compared to 241 million euros in the first half of 2022, resulting in net in earnings per share of 34 euro cents compared to 13 euro cents in the first half of 2022. The increase in net profit in the first half of 2023 included an increase of 330 million, 313 million euros in the valuation of investments in listed companies compared to a decrease of 567 million euros in the first half of 2022. Net profit also reflects the 345 million euro, 345 million euro equity plan expense in the first half of 2023. Adjusted net profit, which adjusts for the revaluation of these investments, as well as for the equity expense, amongst other items, grew 14% to 754 million euros in the first half of 2023, resulting in adjusted earnings per share of 41 euro cents in the first half compared to 37 euro cents in the, in the first half of last year. You'll notice that the adjusted net profit of 664 million euros and adjusted earnings per share of 37 euro cents for the first half of 2022 in today's press release differs from what we reported for these items last year. In compiling our year-end 2022 financials, we excluded from adjusted net profit the 89 million euro benefit from the two tax litigations settled and disclosed in the first half of 2022, which were one time in nature. At the full year, we determined it more appropriate to exclude these tax settlements from adjusted net profit and today we are aligning our half-year reporting to how we reported the full year 2022. To be clear, there is no change in adjusted net profit or adjusted EPS for the full year 2022. In line with our commitment to pay a dividend of at least 50% of our net profits, the interim dividend for 2023 will be 437 million euros or 24 euro cents per share in line with 2022's interim dividend. I'd like to turn now to cash flow. Net cash provided by operating activities, forgive me, our net cash provided by operating activities before income taxes paid for the first half of 2023 was 703 million euros, up 16% year over year. This included net royalty advance payments of 95 million euros, down 57% from 223 million euros in the first half of 2022, due to less major artist renewals and an increase in recoupment. Net cash provided by operating activities also included the 325 million euros we announced last quarter that we would pay in cash to settle employee tax liabilities arising from equity plan grants. Rather than issue more shares, we funded the taxes 
to lessen the dilutive impact of the grants. Please note that we also intend to settle the taxes on the equity grants that will vest in March of 2024. We now expect total dilution over five years to be less than 4% as opposed to the 5% we have shareholder approval for. The strong net cash provided by operating activities before income tax paid <clears throat> allowed the company to continue to strategically invest in the long-term growth of the business. In the first half of 2023, Strategic investments included the acquisition of a brand services company and a niche classical music label, among other items. These acquisitions were made at a blended trailing EBITDA multiple of 8.4 times. We also acquired a 50% stake in the entity that owns the iconic Capitol Records building in Hollywood, the home of our Capitol Records label and the world-renowned Capital Studios. We spent 89 million euros on catalog acquisitions, down from 264 million euros in the first half of 2022. Separately, we put 75 million euros cash into escrow for a catalog acquisition, which will likely transfer out of other investment activities and into catalog investment in 2024. While our name may get associated in the media with the acquisition of catalogs, we will continue to be incredibly selective when allocating our capital. And very large catalog acquisitions are not a priority nor a necessity for us. Income taxes paid and net interest paid both grew year over year as the first half of 2022 benefited from previously disclosed tax settlements. Putting this all together, we had a net outflow for free cash flow of 13 million euros for the first half of 2023, compared to an inflow of 104 million euros in 2022. Remember that the second half of the year is consistently a stronger cash generating period for our business than the first half. We encourage you to look at free cash flow generation on a full year basis rather than for the half year as working capital movements and the timing of investment can vary considerably during a shorter time frame. Just before we go to Q&A, I wanted to remind you of a couple of items to remember in the back half of the year. First, a reminder that in the third quarter of 2022, we booked a settlement of a copyright infringement lawsuit with an internet service provider amounting to 71 million euros in revenue and 52 million in EBITDA in our recorded music business. In addition, recorded music EBITDA in the third quarter of 2022 was impacted by the timing of certain A&R expenses. While these expenses were not unusual for 2022 as a whole, in last year's third quarter, these A&R expenses were up nearly 50 nearly 40 million euros over the prior year due to timing. The last item I'd like to mention is that in the third quarter of 2023, we expect to book a catch-up adjustment of approximately 30 million euros in revenue 
related to the finalization of the Phono Records 3 determination from the Copyright Royalty Board, the CRB, which will be done as a one-time benefit to our music publishing business. And with that, Lucien, Michael Nash, and I will take your questions. Operator, please open the, the line for Q&A. Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please press star followed by one on your telephone keypad now. If you would like to withdraw your question, please press star followed by two. Please limit your questions to two parts and ensure your phone is unmuted locally. Our first question today comes from Thomas Singlehurst from Citigroup. Please go ahead, Thomas, your line is now open. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Tom here from City. Um, congrats on a great set of results. Um, I had, yeah, just the, just the two questions, uh, if that's okay. Um, first one, I, boy, it's for you, and apologies if it's a, a bit technical, but when, when you get revenue from the DSPs, I, I suppose the question is, are you paid in sort of US dollars or, or euros, and then how do you back out the, the currency effect? I just want to just check that the the, the improvement in streaming isn't isn't sort of driven by any um, sort of weird currency impact, um, because obviously it's a, it's a very solid improvement. That was the first question. And then secondly, um, just wondering whether you can put a bit more flesh on the bone about the 75 million of money, uh, uh, 75 million euros being put into an escrow account for a catalogue deal. What, what, how does that come about? Is that a prepayment for a deal that you're going to announce in the future? Thank you. Um, Tom, indeed, your first question is technical. Um, but um, really, the way we report, and actually as you look at it, reporting the constant currency takes out and neutralizes any of the exchange fluctuations. So, you know, when we talked about, or I talked about subscription, for the uh, you know for Q2, the 13% is a very pure uh, you know a very very pure number. Um, so so th I think that addresses that. The um, you know the 75 million euro that's in escrow is indeed quite unusual, um, and it's just it's part of a deal structure that we put in place as part of a of, of, and we talk about it this way because it you know it is basically an IP acquisition, a catalog acquisition. And the structure is such that um, there's escrow for a period before that gets released uh, into, uh, you know, in terms of payment. So <clears throat> it will it will reverse out of where it currently sits, and uh, and it will go into catalog uh, into catalog investment in um, in 2024. It's just a deal structure point. Thank you. The next question comes from Lisa Yang from Goldman Sachs. Please go ahead, Lisa. Your line is now open. Uh, hi. Thanks for taking my questions and uh, congratulations. Um, the, the first question is on, on price increase. I mean, it's uh, great to finally see you know, all this uh, price increases coming through. Uh, I just wonder, do, do you think this is more structural and we're entering the cycle of more recurring price increases? Um, and do you think, you know, to sustain that sort of, you know, recurring sort of price increase cycle, you know, we should be thinking over time to change maybe to a flat fee model as opposed to a rest share with the, the DSP to potentially better align the, the incentives? Um, that, that's the first question. Um, and secondly, um, you highlighted as your third strategic uh, ambition uh, to expand your presence in faster growing music market. Is it fair to 
assume you'd be focusing more on the front line in terms of investments as opposed to catalogs. So just thinking how you think about the balance of investments between front line catalog um, and, and what is, uh, you know, just checking, you know, the, the front line is probably more priority today given um, some of the sort of market share fluctuations. Thank you. So let me take the first question, Lisa. Um, and with respect to price increases uh, and how we're um, looking at this um, now that we've got a number of uh, services that uh, have increased price, you know, we're looking at it from a couple of different perspectives. So first of all, obviously we don't set retail price. Um, uh, there's a, you know, a, a, a kind of a dynamic equation that's playing out as we look at market evolution. But to the key point that, Bruce, that Lucian raised in his remarks, music, is very undervalued right now, and we think that there is a you know, great opportunity over time to more fully realize the value of music. Having said that, we're not looking at the price increase equation that, you know, from the standpoint of the wholesaler, is a rate increase equation as something that is going to kind of regularly occur, that there's going to be um, some sort of measured cadence to those increases uh, as we look to the, to the future. I think it's more likely that you'll see some rate increases that will be associated, you know, with product changes over time, but we'll see how that equation unfolds. And then if I understand the other part of your question, um, that's around whether or not, you know, we would be moving to some kind of a flat fee model as opposed to the current revenue share model that we have that's associated in the wholesale retail relationship. We vastly prefer to have uh, a relationship as, as a wholesaler um, with our retail partners that enables us to participate in the revenue that they generate based on the value that we create, you know, which means that you know, we're, the, the, the rev share formulation, um, you know, that, that has some other components, um, you know, sometimes a per play rate, you know, very often a, you know, per subscriber uh, minimums and rates. We think that that creates the best alignment between us and our partners um, because, you know, we're in a position where we're, you know, we're, we're both focused on how we can drive growth and our artists are fully participating in the growth that we're creating on the platforms. So we don't foresee um, moving towards any kind of a change. Um, we, we prefer the model that we currently have in place with respect to wholesale retail, uh, you know, relationship around um, the, the, the uh, model that has us variably participating. Uh, in the revenue that's being generated. And this uh, is by, I mean, just to the, the second question about where, you know, we see our, you know, investment. I mean, we're constantly looking at where we can achieve, you know, the best, uh, you know, returns on the investments that we make. It's important for our capital allocation. And what we're, what we're looking at here, what we will be doing is actually just aligning our investment or bringing it in line, or ensuring it's in line, you know, with where we see the future opportunities, and you know what what, what Lucian outlined, you know, is opportunities we see in, in in several markets that got very significant growth opportunity in front of them for many many years ahead, and so it's you know it's appropriate to be investing into 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 that um, in, into that kind of opportunity. You know, I think I mentioned, you know, earlier that, you know, catalog acquisitions are, are not really a priority for us. You know, it's not part of a, a, a specific strategy, you know, for us. We have been opportunistic, you know, as you know, we have, 
you know, we have made some some investments. We're very, very selective, and you've heard me say, best of the best. But the reality is they're not a priority for us, and uh, they're not required for you know to drive our future growth. So, you know, it's a, it's you know it's tantamount to what we have to do, which is that we have to look for the greatest opportunities, which will bring the best return, uh, you know, to the company. I'd like to add that nothing's formulaic with our M and A. Uh, we're looking for um, substantial growth and activity where we can lean in with our skill sets, with our teams around the world, for broadly great assets, great artists, as well as great entrepreneurs in markets uh, and genres and cultures where we see um, the future and our ability to actually make the market. Thank you. The next question comes from Julian Roche from Barclays. Please go ahead, your line is now open. Yes, uh, good evening everybody and congratulations on beating on every single line for those results. Uh, my first question um, is for Boyd. Uh, royalties advanced were 95 million in the first half of 23, quite a, down quite a lot from 223 last year. Can we get some indications of how much we should expect the full year? is doubling the first half, so around 200 million in the right ballpark. Uh, and uh, the uh, second question for Lucien, you said you um, had not been idle um, in, in, since, since you spoke to us last on trying to um, sign those artist-centric models. So when do you think you'll, you'll sign your, your first of, of such model? Is it a matter of weeks, of months, or quarters? Thank you. Maybe, maybe Julian, I'll, I'll, I'll go. Um, you know, first regarding the, you know, the royalty advances. Um, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, they are indeed down a lot. But rather than, it, it's more a reflection about what happened historically than it, than it's about what happened this, uh, you know, this specific quarter. You know, we we, we talked for, for for you know probably since we became a listed uh, company that. Uh, there were a number of our superstar artists that kind of quite contrarian to what we were hearing in the market. We were hearing the market that these significant artists, you know, could get, basically go their own way, do their own thing, that they didn't need the record company. And we, we, we saw over those last two years, you know, quite the opposite. We, we, it was a number of our superstar artists actually wanting to lean in to do more. And we ended up extending extending our rights in terms of time, broadening the actual rights that we ended up um, uh, capturing for those artists. So what we saw historically in some ways was a kind of elevated or inflated level of gross um, gross advances. So I think it's more, and that's what we you know we described over the last um, last couple of years. And, and 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 this quarter, I would actually be saying is is, is kind of at least in this quarter, is returning to a more normal level of activity, and um, you know, and I am encouraged again because you know an important measure here is the um, is the strength of uh, of the you know an advance is, is exactly what it says, says it's an advance against future earnings, and 
we then recoup against those advances. And the very encouraging thing here that we're seeing is the increase in our recoupment again. So that's, you know, it's a measure of success. It's a measure of, of performance that we look at very, very closely. So rather than it's a comment about Q2 this quarter, it's more a comment about, you know, the elevation that we've seen historically. And clearly there may well be you know, further opportunities later this year or, or, or in subsequent years. And, you know, that's why I'm going to disappoint you as usual and not give you a specific number in relation to the um, the second half of the year. Sorry, I took a little bit too long there. Um, and I don't your, your, your second or your first question. I think it was. Um, Sorry, this Julian, after... Um, can I put it? Uh, we're having, as you one would expect, many, many conversations and discussions with all sorts of DSPs and platforms, uh, both, glo both global as well as um, regional. But I, I think what you're picking up on, what we feel, is that we've arrived at a unique moment in the evolution of streaming. And we see more alignment amongst the music companies and the platforms than ever before. The reality is we've all got a shared interest in addressing the fraud that I referred to earlier, in giving fans the ability to engage in the music and the products and the artists that they love and that they seek and they, they, they lean in for. Um, and that allows us to make sure that the artists are better compensated um, and that, that uh, everybody is rewarded for the engagement that those artists drive. Uh, it's taken an enormous amount of effort uh, to get to this place, um, and we've obviously got a lot more work to do. Uh, but I am pleased with the progress that we're making with all of our platform partners. And as I've said before, we are long-term, uh, confident, and uh, we like to find solutions for everybody. And that's what this work is. If I could just add a, a couple of additional comments. Um, and yes, we, I, we are very happy with the progress that we're making with the announced partners, Deezer and Tidal, around the construction of artist-centric models. Um, and and we're, we're feeling um, like the, the process is enabling us with the deep data dives to get a, a, a really good understanding of the specific ways that we can go about realizing the objectives that we've articulated. But I also want to make sure um, that um, it, it's, not, it's not lost uh, uh, in uh, the presentation of the, the progress with respect to the development of the specific models. I want to reiterate what, what Lucian said as part of our newly expanded agreement. Spotify has committed to work to address those concerns that we've highlighted in our push um, towards artist-centric solutions. I think that's very important. Um, in addition, specifically, they're collaborating with us on deep data analysis. They're formally taking part in this foundational piece of our expanding artist-centric initiative. So there are positive developments. There is a lot of momentum. Um, we do have an expectation that we're going to be able to advance from this stage of the project you know, further forward. But to set the context again in the temporal framing that we have previously provided, this is a multi-year project of market transformation, and it involves different dynamics, 
different determinations and different processes with various platforms. You know, we, we have patience here because we know how important this project is, and we know that our, many of our partners, you know, share our concerns and have rolled up their sleeves, and they're working with us, too. So, um, you know, the report is positive developments and positive momentum. Thank you. The next question comes from Michael Morris from Guggenheim Partners. Please go ahead, Michael. Thank you, good afternoon. Uh, I have two questions. My first one is on the economics of your on-demand uh, streaming music relationships. Um, so at this point, you know, there have been announced price increases covering the majority of subscribers on the DSPs. And I'm hoping you can share at least some broader perspective, if not on the individual deals, you know, as consumers pay higher rates for these services, are, are you receiving different royalty payouts from the DSPs, either in total or on the incremental dollar? Um, or are you sort of compensating the DSPs, your DSP partners, in another way that provides them greater economics than they were receiving prior to the increases? So that's my first question. And my second question is on the recently announced TikTok Warner Music Agreement. It was described as expansive and I'd love to hear an update on your relationship with TikTok. Is your agreement current or is it outdated in terms of economics or scope? And are there any elements of, of the announced agreement with Warner Music that you would like to reach as well to perhaps expand your revenue and participation? Thank you. Okay. Well, I, Michael, I'd just like to deal with it in reverse. So I'd like to talk, you, 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 you talk about TikTok. I can't talk about any specific platform negotiation, but what I can say, and I feel strongly about this, that I spent my entire career fighting for artists and the entire value of music. We know that our artists' music and what it's worth to the billions of fans around the world, and we can't settle for a deal with any platform that doesn't fairly recognize that value. Michael. Well, that's extremely well put, and I guess all that I would add um, to that uh, with, with a little bit of uh, you know, nuance with respect to um, uh, TikTok and our relationship with TikTok, uh, you know, we can't comment on the status of negotiations with, with any specific partner, but it is fair to assume that we're constantly engaged in strategic discussions with all of our partners. That definitely applies uh, to TikTok. Um, and I, you know, I would just add that, you know, what we're you know seeing you know in, in terms of the challenge with respect to monetization of short form video, um, there's a rewind for us in terms of the value gap discussions um, in the previous decade, and we were able to achieve win-win partnerships. Um, you know at, at that time you know it was it was YouTube um, who was the partner where there was the concern about the value gap, and you know now we're at a point where we have an excellent partnership um, you know with with YouTube and. Um, you know, they have a stated ambition to be the leader of music monetization. So, you know, we, we believe that by sticking to our principles in terms of fighting for the value of our artist content on our partners' platforms, um, that it's possible to construct these win-win partnerships. And then, um, Michael, to the, the first question that you asked, you know, with respect to the economics of the relationships and pricing, I think you specifically asked about the rates that were paid associated with higher prices and if we're paid at a different rate, I, I, you know, I think the simple answer is no. Um, and just to 
add a little bit of additional commentary. And if my general counsel was here, he'd be kicking me under the table. We have to make it very clear that we don't set retail prices. The retail prices are obviously set by the retailers. But in terms of the relationship with respect to pricing, we've always been very clear that raising prices is not a battle for margin between labels and DSPs. That's not what raising prices is about. There's a much broader set of interests that go into the conversation around pricing. And fundamentally, artists deserve price increases from which they will directly benefit based on the compelling value proposition that their content is creating for consumers. So we're not looking at the equation around what's happening with respect to rates and prices in the marketplace as a battle for margin. And so, again, to return to the simple answer to your question, as I understood it, the answer is no. Thank you. The next question comes from Adrian de Saint-Hilaire from Bank of America. Please go ahead, Adrian. Your line is now open. Great. Thank you. And indeed, well done for those numbers. So I've got a couple of questions, if you don't mind. One which is a bit on the shorter term, perhaps. So yesterday, we heard Spotify talked of growth in their subscription business accelerating into the second half as the price increases notably kick in into Q4. Is that also what you would assume? And therefore, is there an update to your outlook for subscription growth for the full year, which I think is low double digits? And then perhaps a question for Michael or Lucien. So I know it's probably been a few months now that you started running those tests with some partners around this new artist-centric model. Could you perhaps share with us what's been the uplift for you in terms of revenue around these tests between this new model and the old model? Thank you very much. Well, Adrian, maybe I'll deal with the first point about price increases. Clearly, we're pleased to see the price increases coming through from Spotify and from Apple. We're working through the detail of what those mean. It's complicated a little bit because of geography by geography. But the reality is that you're not really going to see anything coming through until Q4 and then into 2024. It's very encouraging to hear how Spotify are commenting on the timing from their perspective. So we should be broadly comparable with what they're saying with regard to that particular platform. In regard to guidance, we haven't given guidance on what our subscription growth will be for the full year. You've seen it from the half year, we were just over 11%. And in the quarter, we were at 13%. And in Q4, hopefully, we'll see the price increases starting to flow through in Q4. And then, Adrian, with respect to the question about the development of the artist-centric initiatives and what we're seeing in terms of revenue, as I described the progress report earlier, we've made a lot of advances with respect to the data analysis component of the project. We're at the point right now where we're looking at 
uh, implementation opportunities, um, but we're not at a point where there is uh, you know any revenue um, discussion with associate, uh, excuse me, associated with um, uh, implementations. So I, I would leave the progress report, um, you know, where we had, uh, uh, concluded the uh, answer to the previous question that um, you know we feel like we're we're making excellent progress in terms of data analysis, and we feel like we have great momentum with the project. Thank you. The next question comes from Connor O'Shea from Kepler Chevrolet. Please go ahead. Your line is now open, Connor. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for taking my questions. Uh, congratulations on the results as well. Uh, so from my two questions, uh, first question, maybe for Boyd, um, the 30 million catch-up uh, in Q3 on music publishing, uh, I guess that's a revenue impact. I wonder if you could give uh, as an estimation of the EBITDA uh, uh, impact, I imagine it's uh, quite a high uh, flow through uh, and drop down. And then second question, just in general terms, at this stage of the year, looking into the second half of the year, do you, how would you compare the expected release schedule compared with the second half of last year? Is it is it heavier, lighter, or, or about the same at, at this stage? Uh, what, what can you say on that? Thank you. Um, Thanks, Connor. The um, yeah, the, 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 the CRB, uh, you know, settlement, 30 million of revenues. I think you can expect the margin to be broadly in line with the totality, you know, the, the margin of our of our overall, uh, you know, publishing uh, business. So I think that would deal with, uh, you know, with that. You know, in terms of the um, in terms of the release schedule, you know, we we we're going in through this year with great momentum um, and. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing in particular to bear in mind about release schedule, when it, when it actually in relation to the subscription and the streaming platforms, it certainly uh, it is not as significant an item as it is actually in the, in, the, in the physical business. So, you know, some of the, you know, the volatility that you see in, on, on physical revenues is very much tied to, you know, release schedule, you know, particularly in a country like, uh, you know, you know Japan, which you know you do see quite significant volume fluctuations, but we feel, you know, we feel good about where we are and 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 and, and the rest of the year we've got good momentum. Okay. I would add to that that the, the, the size of the the hits gives you a tailwind. Um, they subside slowly. Monthly listeners increase. With the volume and, and the success of the, of, of the current hits, the current products, and the long tail becomes long. Thank you. Our final question today comes from Sylvia Cunio from Deutsche Bank. Please go ahead, Sylvia. Your line is now open. Thanks. Good evening, everyone, and congratulations on the results. I have two questions. Uh, the first one is around the operating leverage uh, you delivered in Q2. You mentioned that we should not extrapolate the same increase for full year, but just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the drivers of this operating leverage in Q2 and what um, you know could not be repeat to the same extent at the full year level. And um, 
second question on the cash flow, um, a follow-up to some of the prior questions, maybe focusing on the amount that you spent in uh, terms of acquisition of uh, consolidated companies, affiliates, and financial assets. Can you say a bit more color about perhaps how much was Thailand within the mix? And uh, what else can you tell us to be comfortable of the H2 improvement in free cash flow? Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, Sylvia, thank you. So, the, I mean, the operating and, and leverage in, in, in Q2 or the, the margin expansion in Q2 is probably the right way to, you know, to start. So, the margin expansion in Q2 was was 1.9%. Uh, All I was really saying was that, that you know, on a quarter-by-quarter quarter basis, don't always expect the 1.9%. And, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely some, some volatility in, in all of that. But in specifically in, in Q2, there's, there's, there's two reasons for, for how or why the, uh, you know, the margin expanded by 1.9%. Operating leverage, yes, that, that, that is one part. And then the second item uh, that you need to take into consideration in Q2 is, you know, that we, um, in terms of adjusted EBITDA margin, we had 24 million uh, euros of, um, of non-cash compensation, of cash, sorry, of cash expense reduction as a result of the, um, you know, from the equity plan. So operating leverage and the, uh, and the cash reduction resulting from the introduction of the equity plan drove, drove, the, um, drove the, the expansion. And then, you know, you're taking question which was to do with the cash with it with the cash flow you know I ran through um, uh, you know earlier what the um, what the major items were you know in, in, you know in essence it was nothing to you know I think it was timing you, you were talking about. I mean these are acquisitions that we've made we, we acquired a brand um, a brand services uh, you know business and um, and, uh, and a classical Classical music label, niche classical music label. Those two things together were what I referred to as having acquisitions that had a, um, a trailing EBITDA multiple of uh, 7.8.4 uh, times. Forgive me if I just got that wrong. I think it is 8. times. Um, and and then there were other. Um, there were two other items that I called called out. One was um, you know it was an uh, an item which is related, which is really related to, it is a catalog acquisition. Um, but the way that the deal was structured, the 75 million euros goes into escrow, and then uh, over a period of time, we believe in 2024, it will be reallocated out of escrow and will move into catalog acquisition. And then it was a deal structure that they were. It was just a, yeah, it was just the way the deal actually. Yeah, okay. There's nothing kind of uh, no, no, nefarious, nefarious in yeah. terms of what. It's just a, just a deal structure. And then, um, you know, the last item that I, you know, I called out is that we acquired 50% of the entity that uh, owns the, um, you know, the, um, the real estate and the, uh, and the building, the, the capital records building, and, uh, and, and, you know, and that was, you know, that's the world-renowned Capital Studios and has been the home of, of Capital Records. So we, you know, we have bought into the real estate um, with that uh, property. Because it's iconic. I'm absolutely yeah. iconic, Mark. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's call. Thank you for joining. You may now disconnect your lines.